0: Okay, Malachi 3, we're going to read 6 through 12. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, How shall we return? And pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. And I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. And then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. So we're going to deal with one of those subjects that is dealt with in church that makes people nervous. Already some of you have said to your spouse, oh no, we're going to talk about money and tithing and offerings. Why did we get up this morning? We got an extra hour sleep. We could have gotten more about that. So I hope that that's not your attitude this morning because with every area of our lives, as Christ followers, we want the truth to reign over us. And so today, I'm not going after your money. I'm going after your heart. Because with every issue of our lives, it is our heart that is the issue. So at the end, we'll take up your credit cards, but we're not going to do that in the very beginning. Okay? That will happen as you leave. We'll have a little scanner, you know, just one of those beeping things, and, and you can do that. So again, I'm not... I'm not going after your money today, I am not, but I want God to get your heart and to capture all of our attention today um, about this. And so we want what's true. And so a part of our time, more toward the end, we will deal with that, but there's some other really important things that we just read that we will also deal with in just a moment. I want to ask you to turn to your new, keep your finger there in Malachi 3, and I want you to turn to the New Testament book of 1 Timothy for a moment. And I wanted to start off um, with this this morning, First Timothy chapter six, and just as a, a reminder of, of our heart and what can be a danger for us in this area before we begin to walk through the test. First Timothy, chapter six, and we're going to look at just for a moment, um, verse 10. First Timothy, six. Ten. All right. Here's Paul writing to this pastor Timothy, a younger man leading a congregation, most likely the church in Ephesus. He says, "For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils, and it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs." Now, I don't know if any of us use the word pangs. That just means sorrows. Is the idea, and just depending on what your translation is. So, I want to touch on this just for a moment because it will set the stage of what we're going to see in a little bit when we get to um, what God is dealing with them as an issue that was taking place in the land. So, Paul writes here, and he just says this it is the love of money, not money, money's just a thing. It's the love of money and organizing our life and orchestrating everything in our life around making sure that money becomes the source of our life. And many people live that way, that money is the thing that determines how I live and whether my life is blessed or not. And so they, they, they were tricked into, by our flesh, into thinking that that's the answer. And so Paul shares here, do not let the love of money establish deep roots inside of your life and roots go down into the ground to provide stability and to get nourishment and so Paul says you've got to be careful about this Christ follower that your love and making sure that that you have all of this stuff and really connected more to your wants and not your needs that this becomes the driving thing and then you set up roots thinking That money is the provider, not God as the provider. And so he says, be careful to not allow those roots to grow deep inside of you and and take such a precedent in your life. For if we allow that, Paul says, to be established, it will lead to all kinds of evils. Now, let's deal with this just for a second. The love of money doesn't mean that everything in our life has its root connected to that. But Paul's emphasis is this, is this kind of love of things of the world can really lead to some sorrows and some decisions that are really difficult. It seems to, when greed is established, can lead to enhancing sin in some areas and amplifying this in our lives. And so he says, be careful to not let this take root. And then he says, he uses the word, craving in the esv for the love of money is the root of all evils and it is through this craving this word craving in the greek just means to strive after to lean forward to reach forth to try to to grab it it's a i desire to attain it is another meaning of the greek and so paul says be careful of this because if if this gets established and this is your desire to just attain 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 it has led some to wandering literally away from the faith And they actually go astray from what's solid and strong and good for them in their lives. And then Paul says they've wandered away from the faith and they have pierced themselves. This is a picture. I've never experienced this before in my life, but I've seen it in documentaries and movies where you take a big sword or something really sharp and you run it through a pig and you put it over a fire called a spit. It's kind of the idea. He said this, that's the literal Greek word. It's like putting a pig over a spit. These people pierce through their lives and open their lives up to great sorrows if the love of money becomes the dominant thing. And so God is going to touch on this with Judah here in a moment when we get there. But I wanted to establish why this is such a danger. And again, I want to remind you, this is not my counsel. This is God's counsel. And if he's the all-wise, infinite, all-powerful one, then he knows what's best. And so as the Spirit led Paul to write this, to teach Timothy for this church and to teach us, we need to heed well, that we've got to be careful that this love of money doesn't take root inside of us because Paul's counsel is and the Spirit's counsel is it will lead to sorrows if it takes over our lives. So let's go back to Malachi 3 now. Has everybody survived so far? Is everybody okay? Okay, all right. Nobody, nobody's... Brad, are you offended yet? Okay, he's not offended yet. All right, okay. All right, so Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. And I'm going to talk first of all this morning what God speaks here. God is going back, if you would go back with me to chapter 2, verse 17. God is still answering the question from chapter 2, verse 17 and how they see him. And so look at 2.17. So you have wearied the the Lord with your words, but you say, well, how have we wearied God? By saying three things here. Everyone who does evil is now good in the sight of the Lord. Secondly, that He actually delights in them. Or by asking the question, where is the God of justice? Or in other words, it doesn't seem like He really cares anymore about the way sinners live. And so... So God is still answering this question that they began asking in chapter 2, verse 17, that it just seemed when they looked around, Judah thought, it seems like God is now okay with people who live outside of His will. And not only that, but then they say, God, it actually kind of seems like He delights them. He likes what they're doing that's sinful. And then they're looking around and going, well, the it's apparent that God's not really concerned about justice because look at the nations outside of our borders look at the gods that they worship they sacrifice their children and and literally put them on an altar and throw their children into fire and they do this and they do that and they don't acknowledge him so it kind of looks like that god is not really concerned about justice anymore and we've talked about this the problem was they were just like living just like the nations outside of the border And they were blind to what was true about them. And so God answered, we saw this two weeks ago, first of all by saying, okay, here is an answer to that. Am I concerned about justice? I am. I'm going to send the forerunner named John the Baptist. And he's going to come and get things ready. And then I'm going to send the Messiah himself to come. And you will see that when they come that I'm concerned about sin. I'm concerned about bringing justice. And so now when we get to 6 through 12, he's continuing to answer this question of them charging God with delighting in evil, delighting in evil people, and not being concerned at all about righteousness and justice. There's an ancient Greek philosopher. His name was Heraclitus or Cletus. I don't know how you pronounce it. I've seen it both ways. But he's most known for this statement. Man cannot ever step into the same river twice and so he's this philosopher and basically what he said was this that if you come to the very same spot in the river like let's just say this is where my boundary would be this and this and then the river was right here if i were to step into the river that river would never ever be the same twice for next time i stepped into it the water might be a little bit higher Um, some of the stones in the river may have moved a little bit and so he used to talk about that everything in life changes it's constantly changing and so one of his big statements was man cannot ever step into a river and that river be exactly the same everything constantly changes but there's one reality that never changes and that is God and so as Judah is charging God with delighting in evil and not being fair and just God answers here and says this I don't change. I am the Lord, and there's nothing about what I do, what I say, how I work, that's changed from the very beginning before anything ever was. I I am the same then as I am now. And so Heraclitus' point was just change is always happening all around us, Whether we can perceive it, whether we like it, don't like it, like it, etc., etc., it's always happening. But with God, we can bank on that God does not change. So the Bible and theologians refer to this as the immutability of God that God doesn't change. It's literally impossible for God to change in his nature. Here are some things that are true of him. He never learns. He has no need of learning. He's infinite. He's perfect. Therefore, His knowledge has always been the same from the beginning. It is the same now and it will be the same in the future. God is never shocked or surprised. God's love for sinners and for us and for His people has never changed. Now, there are consequences, obviously, with that, but God's love has not. God's grace is still available to those who will come to Him and turn to Him. God keeps His promises perfectly, no matter what. God's mercy is unchanging. It will never change. The Great Commission mandate to go into all the nations, it will never change. So what does this mean when God, in answering their question, says, I do not change? What does this ultimately mean? mean that God is unchanging so when we say God is unchanging or immutable listen to this this is important it doesn't mean that he can change but simply decides to not change God doesn't change cannot change this is not a limitation this is a reality that he is the only one who does not change There's not a need for him to change. He is not panicking about anything in the last, let's just say, five years where he's been shocked about something. God knows the future. We know that from prophecy in the Old Testament coming true about the New Testament. We know that the prophecies about Jesus and in times, that they will come true because God absolutely knows all things. God cannot change He is the same today in this moment, in this room, today when he created the earth. He's exactly the same. And he will always be exactly the same as he was in the beginning. He will always be the same in every one of his perfections for all of eternity. There is not an external action that can be thrust upon God that he has to go, oh, no, I don't know what to do. Well, I've got to. God's not. Listen to this, church. This has been taught for a long time wrongly. God is not the master chess maker up in heaven where man makes a move and God makes a counter move. God is the ruler of the universe. He does not bow to us. He does not bow to sinful actions and hearts. But He honors righteousness and goodness. So God is unchanging in His being and His perfection and His purposes and His promises. Listen to this one. God cannot ever get better. Because you cannot improve God. He's absolutely perfect in everything. That also means that God can never get worse. There's not anything about Him that will be negative. His grace cannot be torn from His omniscience. His sovereignty cannot ever be torn away from His love. His judgment cannot be separated either from His mercy or from His wrath. The psalmist loved this thoughts these thoughts about god's unchanging nature listen to this this is psalm 102 25 in the beginning you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands they will perish but you remain they will all wear out like a garment like clothing you will change them and they will be discarded but you god remain the same for your years will never end and so God, in the beginning, again, answering this question, just says this, I'm the Lord, I'm the sovereign king of the universe, and I do not change, period. Not in any kind of way do I change. And so then he says this, so he says, Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, Judah, you are not Consumed. This is one of those places where therefore needs to be given good consideration. He's telling Judah, you need to be incredibly thankful that I don't change for if I changed, I would consume you in your constant rebellion against me. But I have made you promises and I'm going to continue to hold up my end of the covenant though you don't hold it up and it's good for you That I don't change, for if I did change, I would consume you. That that deserves an amen. Because in every one of our lives, we change. We choose rebellion. We choose selfishness. We choose anger. We choose love of all kinds of things that are not God. And some of us, we know this, we've wrestled with stuff. For years the same thing, and we come back, and we come back, and we come back saying, God, I know, I know, I know, I know. I know I told you that I would never do this again, but I've done it again, and I'm back at this same place. And praise be his name that he says once again, You return to me, and I will return to you. And so God's unchanging nature is amazing. This kind of brings us back to the theme of Malachi chapter one, where God says to them in the beginning, He says, he says, I, I love you, Judah. I love you. And they say back to him going, well, we don't see how you've loved us. And so God answers in Malachi 1, 1 through 4. He says, well, um, if you're not convinced that I love you, um, just look at the Edomites who are no longer on the planet anymore. They are the descendants of Esau, and they're not around anymore because they rebelled against me, fought against me, mocked me, did all of these things. And I dealt with them and they're not around anymore. And look at you, Judah, you've been just like them and you're still around. So let me give you the proof of how much I love you. I I wiped the Edomites out. I've not wiped you out, though you've been exactly like them. So now we come to chapter three and and God's saying, listen, you, you're telling me that I've changed, and my concern about sin and things of that nature have changed, and I'm just here to tell you that I have not changed. Two things with this, and we're going to move on to point two. God did not destroy them. But listen to this. Because of God's covenant and his love for them, he was not going to consume them. And the first thing is this we're going to have this up on the I think it is up there on the screen. The survival of Judah had nothing to do with their good merit. They, they didn't have any. And so they were still around, not because they had shown faithfulness throughout thousands of years. All they had shown is rebellion on a pretty pretty consistent basis. And God had not consumed them. Why? Because He made promises and God keeps His promises. Is that not good about God? That, that, That should encourage us today that God has promised things and He will follow through because He is the God who does not change. So when he says he will do something, he will do it. The second thing is the only reason they were not consumed is because God does not change. And that gives us a great confidence in the deep reality of God. So here's the second thing that's important for us to look at. In verse 7, second part of verse 7 and following. So read with me from the days. And I want to talk about the gracious, gracious invitation of God. By the way... Are y'all ready to read? We're going to read a bit. And so I'm going to call you to go to Deuteronomy in just a moment, and we're going to read some things. But let me just read Malachi 3 7. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and not kept them. So return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say to me, How shall we return? So consistently God throughout Malachi he has been pointing out things that were wrong in Judah and then they question God's assessment of them. What are you talking about, God? What you just said cannot be true about us. It's true about all the nations outside of Israel and so they point outward and never look inward. And so now God is saying to them, all you have done is change. I have never changed in my love for you, my care for you, but all you have done is consistently say yes God and follow me for a little bit but then you change and you go your old way and so God is saying to them from from the beginning way back your forefathers from the days of your fathers here's what you've done just like you've done now in Malachi's generation you have turned aside so um not long from this in Malachi in Ezra Chapter 9, actually, you can go ahead and start turning to Deuteronomy chapter 9. But in Ezra, the faithful priest, he called out the nation for the same issue that Malachi is. He said, from the days of, your, of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. Ezra says, and for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of kings of the lands to the sword, to captivity, to plundering and to utter shame as it is today so they had returned back from their captivity for 70 years and had been back not even not even 100 years yet and they turned away from god and so ezra is talking to them listen this is the case we have continued to do this this word turned aside means to depart from the way or to bend the way i want to kind of i don't want to walk the straight and narrow i want to kind of bend it and i want to kind of go this direction a little bit and do my own thing so in Deuteronomy chapter 9 um, the Lord is talking and Moses is writing here in Deuteronomy nine twelve, if you would look with me there then the Lord said to me Moses is up on the mountain he says arise go down quickly from here for your people whom you have brought from Egypt have acted corruptly they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them and they have made themselves a metal image look at verse 16 and so Moses comes down and I looked and behold you had sinned against the Lord your God you had made yourselves a golden calf you had here's that phrase turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord God had commanded you go to Deuteronomy chapter 17 now Deuteronomy seventeen eleven through 13 says this, according to the instructions that they give you, he's talking about the priest here, and according to the decision which they pronounce to you, you shall do. You shall not, here's this phrase, turn aside from the verdict that they declare to you, either to the right hand or to the left, and the man who acts presumptuously by not obeying the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord your God or the judge, that man shall die. And you shall purge the evil from Israel. And all the people shall hear and fear and not act presumptuously again. Now I want you to go to Joshua. Keep going to your right. Go to the very end of Joshua. Chapter 24. Joshua's after Deuteronomy. So they've settled the land. They were told to drive out all the people there. They didn't drive out all the people there, and that became an issue later on. But Joshua, after they've settled the land, comes to them now in chapter 24, verse 19. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then He will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And so the people said to Joshua, no, 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 Joshua, we're going to serve the Lord. And so Joshua said to the people, well, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve Him. And they said to Joshua, yes, we are witnesses. Verse 23, and he said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and do this. You've got to do this. Incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And so the people said to Joshua, the Lord, our God, we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and he set it up under the terebinth. It's a big tree, sturdy tree that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he he spoke to us. Therefore it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. Now go, next book, Judges chapter 2. Verse 6, so when Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel each went to his inheritance to take possession of the land, and the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. It was a good, good time, great generation. And all the days of the elders who had outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun, a servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years, and they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance at Timnath-Harris in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that He had done for Israel. And so the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served Baals, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt, and they went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger and they abandoned the Lord and served the bells and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and He gave them over to plunderers who plundered them and He sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. And whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned them and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. You get to the very end of the book of Judges, and it says, And in those days Israel had no king, and the people did what? Whatever was right in their own eyes. Next part of the history of Israel, they're like, This sure isn't going good, that God's our king. Hey God, can we have a man king? Because when we look at the other nations, it sure seems to be going good for the other nations which by the way was a lie it wasn't going good they had wicked evil kings the other nations did but in first kings 8 they come to god and say we want a king and it does not go well they have very few good kings in the beginning they've got saul not good david Beginning of his time, good, end of his time, deep consequences upon the nation because of his sin. Solomon had a heart for God in the beginning, and then he just allowed any and everything, and he pursued everything. And then the kingdom divides after Solomon, and you've got a northern kingdom that had not one single king that followed God, the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom had three, I believe, if I remember correctly, that followed God, and it didn't go well. You come all the way to a king toward the end by the name of Josiah. His grandfather was Manasseh, a wicked king. And they had not worshipped in the temple and read the scripture in the temple for a long, long time. And they had lost, listen to this, we all have have this, this. they had lost the scripture. So Josiah is rebuilding the temple, trying to get things going again in Jerusalem. And they discover the Bible. They discover what we believe was the scroll of Deuteronomy. And they read it and they come to Josiah's presence and they read it to Josiah and he goes, oh no, we are just like the people who rebelled and we are like them and we've got to get things correctly. He sends them away for 70 years because of their rebellion. They come back and what do they do almost immediately? They start to rebuild the temple. The first exiles under Zerubbabel are to rebuild the temple they start rebuilding the temple. They have a little bit of a party, celebrate that. And then they get some opposition. you know what they do? They go to their hometowns. And Haggai has to speak to them to say, What are y'all doing? Y'all made sure that you've paneled your, you don't want to panel your houses anymore, but they panel their houses. That's what Haggai says. Y'all, y'all, y'all have made sure that your home looks great. And they're in Jerusalem, the place that you were supposed to worship lies in ruins what are you doing and now he's they've been again chastised by not rebuilding the temple and now we're here about a hundred years after they've come back and they're in the exact same place again not interested in having god lead them and guide them and they've rebelled against him again And this this takes us back to the, the verse we just looked at. But God tells them, listen, I have not changed. And it's good that I don't change because I would have consumed you because of your incessant desire to rebel against me. And what's so amazing about God's love and God's grace is this, is what's seen here. From the days of your fathers, this is what you've done. You just want to go your own way. You don't want me to just pour out my love and mercy and grace and guide you. And you don't want to walk in rebellion. And it's never gone well for you when you rebel against me this way. And and so again, he's like, from the beginning, this has been your pattern. You are just like your fathers. And then God does this. And I got very emotional in my kitchen yesterday. I don't think I'll get emotional now, but I could. I could. Because I'm astounded at what's said here. From the days of your fathers, you've just turned aside from my statutes. You've not kept them. And then God says these words. But you can return to me. You can come and repent. And if you'll do that, you know what I will do? I will come to you. I will return to you. And I will forgive you. And I will restore you. This beauty of God's love for people like us is amazing. And now that I'm older, I deeply appreciate that's that's a that's a tame word. I don't know what the word is. I'm just in awe of the unchanging faithfulness of God. Because I change, and he does not. And so God just tells them here, I will forgive you. This word return means to reestablish something in restoration by turning toward. But they were going to have to turn away from their turning away. But if they would turn away from their turning away and they would return to him, God promises here, I will return to you. And so God's saying to them, there is real distance between us, Judah, relationally, that you just don't seem to be seeing. I keep telling you this is an issue, and you keep saying, God, we don't see the issue. So therefore, God, the issue just must be with you. And the gracious invitation of God is in this room this morning. If you have been silently rebelling against God for years, and going your own way, and doing your own thing, He wants to say in the room this morning that the cross continues that same message. You can return and you can come back and I will restore you. But the question comes is just this, do the people of God long to remain in a strong right relationship with God? Because there's a problem and that's the third thing I want to touch on now is there's a blindness if we're not careful that pride brings and sin brings that keeps us from seeing that there's an issue in our lives. And so the last part of verse 7, so God says, Listen, you have turned aside, your fathers have turned aside, you are just like them, but I'm telling you, you can return to me and I will return to you. But they just say, Lord, what are you talking about? From what do we need to return to you from? And so here they are, God telling them the issue, them saying to God, We don't see it. We don't get it. We don't know what you're talking about. How shall we return? By the way, they know how to return. You know how they know how to return? They have in their history written texts on scrolls that told them that there were times in Israel's history that they returned back to God in repentance. And all they needed to do was unroll those and read it. So this idea of, God, I don't know what to do and how to come back to you, was not true but they say to him what do we need to do to return to you and repent of these things and he's just told them that they are just like the earliest people throughout their history like their fathers who had turned aside from the statutes and they had gone their own way they just couldn't see in the moment because they were so blinded by pride and sin and so with some disdain again they just say the They just say to God, "Well, God, we we question your counsel and your observance of us. We don't think it's accurate, and we're not really for sure what you know about this situation because we don't see anything that we need to return back from." Jeremiah had written about this. You know how you come back to God. You know how you come back to God. You come back to God. It's not complicated. So Jeremiah wrote in 322, Return, O faithless sons! Just return. Come back. You remember the parable of the prodigal son? He comes to his senses, and what does he do? He knows that he can't stay in the distant country to get things right. He's got to come back, get face to face with the Father, and he hopes that maybe there will be some aspect of restoration. And boy, was he wrong. He was going to get way more than what he thought he was going to get. He got unbelievable grace and mercy as he came back and i've been doing this for a long time i'm old and not wise i'm partly wise but i have heard this for a long long time some people say god you just don't get it why i am this way stuck in my sin i need you god to be more understanding about why I can't return and why I'm going to continue to do the things that I'm doing, God. If you had a boss like mine, God, you just don't understand. My emotions are just always a mess, and I just don't know what to do anything about about them. God, my 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 kids and kids say, God, my parents. Some people some people would say to God, Well, God. Um, if my spouse was different, if they would change, then, then, then that would enable, help me to change. And then some people say, well, just God, my circumstances, if they could just, if they could just get better, then I would be stronger, I could feel safe, and I wouldn't stay stuck. And basically what people say sometimes is, bottom line, God, um, I just feel better being away from you, and so I'm not going to return to you. And for somebody to say that who knows of God, that means that they're living in a place of blindness and they just can't see that living away from God can never bring life. It can never be what we need it to be. And so they say to God, we don't know really what you are talking about. And so God says, okay, well then let me give you an illustration. And so this is where you might get uncomfortable, but you don't need to get uncomfortable. And so he says, okay, let me tell you an issue that you have that's permeating in the land. And he says that all of you, he's going to say that here. And they were robbing from God, stealing from God. So look at verse 8. <clears throat> so he asks a question, will a man rob God? And the, the idea there is, why would anybody want to do that and think they could? And God's like, well, yeah, you would think that people wouldn't want to do that, but they are doing that. My covenant people are doing that. And so will a man rob God? And God says, yet you are robbing me. But you say back to me again, they question God, but God, how have we robbed you? And so God says, okay, you really want to know? Okay, here it is. In your tithes and contributions or offerings. And you are cursed with a curse for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, and see if I will not open up the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no end. So to get their attention, God kind of reaches out his finger and he touches an issue and tells these perfect people of this nation who've got it all together, well, here's just a sample illustration as to what's not right in your heart and how you have not returned and how you need to return back to me biblically and I will bless the land. And they're like, "You want us to return to you and we've never really left? How in you 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 think we've robbed you? How have we robbed you, God? We're we are not doing anything of that nature." And so God, I think basically just kind of says this, "Well, you know that you know that place in the temple where people are to bring their tithes and offerings and their grain and their fruit, and it's to go into this storehouse? Priests, why don't y'all walk down the hallway to the storehouse? And you'll be able to see the emptiness in the storehouse that you are robbing for me and you're not doing what I've instructed to you to bring your tithes and your contributions, your offerings to the storehouse. For if you did, there would be enough in there do y'all remember when we were going through the w4 um, a few months ago in nehemiah nehemiah goes back to serve artaxerxes he was the cupbearer, and he goes back he had promised artaxerxes that he would return and so he goes back and he goes back and then he returns and we believe it's probably over 10 years that he's gone and he comes back and when he comes back there's a guy who's an enemy of the jews who's living in the temple living listen to this in the storehouse where the offerings and contributions come. And Nehemiah comes back, and he is not happy. Nehemiah was a little bit violent. If you ever read about him, he's a little fired up about doing stuff to people who had rebelled. And he kicks the guy out. The guy had placed furniture, and he's living inside. And Nehemiah, what had happened was the priests had to go back to their hometowns and start farming so that they could feed their family Because the priests were taken care of when the people brought their tithes and their offerings and their grain and all of that into the temple. It took care of the priests so that they could do the work inside the temple. And so Nehemiah deals with with that. This is not long, too much longer after Nehemiah, really about the same time where this is happening. And so God says, why is the storehouse empty? You see that, right? I can look down from heaven and I see it. You can walk down the hallway, right? And you can see that it's empty. And this is going to be an ouch point for them. So God says, let's bring this to 2023. Time change. It's going to get dark really early today. It's going to be weird. But on this time change Sunday, God says this. To believers in 2023 hey why don't you open up your laptop or that bank app on your phone and let's take a look and let's see what's happening and let's take an honest look at the checking account and let me show you whether or not you are you've returned to me with your finances or you've turned aside from me with your finances and so god says will a man rob, rob god and yet you are robbing me this word means to defraud to force to take to take something forcibly or to literally rob so they say to god how have we robbed you and again god is not just flippantly randomly going oh let me grab something i'll grab money no he grabs money and tithing And he places it before them because it's what? It's true. This is a real issue for them. So he grabs it and he puts it before them and he's methodically shining the light on multiple issues. And this one is this issue of money. So they question God again over his new concern about this place. And they continue to be entrenched that God is not making accurate points about where they are i I want to give an illustration in my own life. <clears throat> so at this point in time in my life, and for um, I, didn't, I didn't become a believer until the very end of my junior year, so I lived years um, away from the Lord and kind of doing my own thing. And so when I came to Him, and then I began to really walk with Him, there have been moments along the way where God challenges us, doesn't He? You read something in the Scripture, and it's challenging. And we read it, And the Holy Spirit gets active in that moment and you're like, ugh, this is not right in my life. And so usually, not usually, used to usually, I don't do this anymore, but I used to, when God would touch that area and say, This is not right, you ever done this with God? You ever bow, you ever bow up and you're angry, like you know, and somebody, somebody shares and points out something that's not right. And I would, I would like want to fight God about that. And I learned pretty quickly how useless. When God points out something, it is ever from his infinite goodness. And he, what is he saying in that moment? You want freedom? You think you have freedom by, by just doing your own thing. And I'm here to tell you, doing your own thing in that area is not freedom. And so I'm touching this because I want you to be free. I want you to be full I want you to walk in the joy of walking in obedience. And so while in sometimes there's an initial moment of pride that's there, for me it doesn't last really long anymore because I don't want to fight him. Cuz I know I know he's good. Not everything in our life is good, right? Not everything is good. But he is always good, and he causes all things to work for good, even things that aren't good. Joseph, at the very end of Genesis, he's got his brothers there. They just did him wrong when he was a teenager. They, were, they, they, were, they probably would have done it again, but Joseph gave his heart to the Lord, and God moved in Joseph's heart, and he, he says these great words, what you meant for evil, God meant for what? What? good and so in our lives we we've got to we've got to come to a place where we don't fight god when he points out something that's not right in our heart we just come to an agreement and say god yeah i'll surrender this because in the area of money if god touches that in anybody's heart we cannot have an entitled mindset that wants to fight god about this issue where we are demanding of him that he can only do this, and 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 he's got to decide something more in line with what we want him to do. This stingy mindset of robbing from God is not going to do anybody good at all. So I already told you they were to bring their tithes and offerings. Um, they were to help for the temple work. As a matter of fact, some of this um, even was if they were to, if they if somebody was really successful as a farmer or a sheep herder and it was just too much to bring all of the grain and the, and the other stuff, they could convert that in their village or somewhere throughout Israel for cash. But listen to this, if they, because it was too much to put on wagons to bring into Jerusalem, they could convert it to cash. This was in Leviticus. They could convert it to cash, but then they added, had to add a fifth of that, 20% more, to that, to make sure that they were not robbing the tithe and keeping money for themselves, and so they could do that. That's in uh, I don't remember. Maybe I'll see it in my notes. I've kind of jumped ahead a little bit because <clears throat> I want to wind this this down this morning. But they were to bring their tithes and their offerings. Now, somebody will come along, and people do come along, and people fall on both sides of this. Some people say, "Well, tithing isn't relevant to the New Testament anymore. It's not really." Taught in the New Testament. What's taught in the New Testament? Does anybody know what's taught in the New Testament? Generous, cheerful giving. Okay, so that's really strongly emphasized. But if you'll look in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees does affirm the tithe with them that they're tithing um, their mint and and dill and, and things of that nature. So Jesus actually, while he was here, gave affirmation of the tithe the tithe just literally means 10 percent. the new testament yes i would agree i don't think abolishes the tithe but the new testament teaches that we are to be cheerful generous givers the minimum amount of giving in the old testament was the tithe so i Let's just be. Can we be honest this morning? Hopefully, can we be honest together this morning? If the minimum of the Old Testament was ten percent, can we come to an agreement and that the New Testament says that it's generous giving that you need to at least start at ten percent? I think it's just clear. I don't know how we can argue with it. There's nowhere in the New Testament where God says to us of anything that we own, whether it's our job, our house, our car. Y'all just, I I know I've redeemed you from the pit of hell and I've given you a relationship. Why don't y'all just be minimalist givers back to me? If you can find that, then I'll move over to your side. But I'm just telling you, you can't find it. So again, let's talk honestly about this just for a second. Um, I don't know what anybody gives at the church, so I can talk freely because I don't have any knowledge. I I don't know. There's some people who count the money, and they know about that. But this is what I'll say. The Old Testament word for tithe is 10%, and that was the minimum. And the New Testament lays down a standard of generous giving. Then again, I'll just say this. It seems like 10% is a starting place of generous, sacrificial, financial giving. And again, in light of the great gospel of our salvation, we should be generous people giving back to the kingdom. Now, I want to be careful here to just interpret the text as it is. I don't think the church is the storehouse in the Old Testament, okay? It's the church. But I also think that we can't just ignore that there is to be a place that we bring the tithe to And when you come to the New Testament, one of the clearest places of that is the local church that you are attending, that you ought to give to that generously. John Piper said this, he said, Christians ought to live with a wartime mentality, gladly making personal sacrifices in order to advance Christ's cause. If we expect missionaries to live sacrificially for the sake of the gospel, shouldn't we hold ourselves to the same standard? If we live in relative luxury while people perish because there aren't enough funds to get the gospel to them, are we not guilty of robbing God? And I love what God does here. He says, if you've never never trusted me in this area, here's what I want to say to you, and this is what he said to Judah. Test my integrity as your God test me. Now, <clears throat> I told Mark this, and Pam and, I, Pam and I had a conversation about this yesterday when we were out and about. I wasn't a believer until I was 17, so I attended church every now and then, and every year around budget time, the pastors would always preach on tithing, because you had to get money for the budget and get ready for the next year, and so you know this if you've been here. If you're a guest today, um, just ask somebody around you, and they can tell you this is the truth. We have never, ever in the history of this church in 15 years tried to manipulate you about money, have we? We've never done that. We do not do that here. Because if I try to force you and manipulate you to give, then you will never be a cheerful giver. But if your heart belongs to the Lord, you will become a cheerful giver. So we're not going to do that here. We're not going to hound you, and we're not going to send you letters um, because we've been keeping track. We 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 don't do that. But here's the thing this is really really important the lord here says this he lays forth a challenge he says scrutinize me test me that's what that word test means test my integrity test my word return to me in this area if you've turned away from this area and see what i will do so let me come back to what i started to say a while ago my whole life i grew up reading Malachi 3.10 is that God's just going to open up these windows in heaven and just abundance, 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 abundance. It's just going to be poured out. And I'll admit to you that when I wrote this sermon, I'm still hearing all the preaching in my past until it's important to read the text. Did y'all know that? Do you know what he says here? I will pour down for you a blessing Until there is no more need. What's he concerned about? Need. Need. And so this has been misused. It's affected me. And I've walked with the Lord for a long time. This is not about, okay, I'm going to test God. And he's just going to give me that car I've always wanted since I was 15. I wanted that car when I was 15. And he's going to do that. No. You know what he's going to do? He's going to say, I've saved you by my son. Test me in every area of your life. Trust me in every area. Test me in this one. And here's what I'll show you that I will do I will meet your needs. I'll meet your need. So, this again blows the water out of the prosperity gospel. It's not a true gospel, it's a false gospel. So listen to this. We don't give so that we will get more money in return. God did not set a system up like that. That's contrary to his nature. He doesn't reward according to the American dream. He doesn't have a bunch of banks in heaven that have Czechoslovakian money. I guess that's euro now or whatever, and, and he's got... He's got pesos and he's got that. And and he's like, no, 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 no. It doesn't have anything to do with money. This text, I want you to see that. This text has nothing to do with money. He says, test me by you trusting me by giving 10% or being more than that. If you make a lot, 10% is the starting point and generous giving is the point of the New Testament. So it at least starts at 10%. And for some of us, our generous giving may need to be 18% because of what we make and he says you test me on this and i will make sure for the rest of your life that your needs will be met i think that's beautiful that god wants to enter into this agreement this way so the last verses were just like god just is god is god is saying to them if you'll if you'll do this you will be a blessing people will look inside the borders of israel and they will see those people give their grain their sheep their money their time their treasure and they trust god and while they're giving back to god and it looks like they have less they actually have more and the nations will look in it's what 11 and 12 say And the nations will say, wow, that's a land of delight. Why? Because God's blessing it. And when he blesses it, great work happens. All right. See this right here? Handwritten. And I'm finishing there, so we really are almost finished, okay? It is really important that if it's our parents God is using to speak to us about an issue in our life, if you're a student or a child, or if it's a spouse and God's using them, or if it's God's word, if it's somebody else in our life, to quit being defiant to God, just to submit. And when we submit, freedom comes. Here's what tithing and cheerfully giving is saying it's only saying this god my life is yours all i have is yours so here is my 10 percent. here is my whatever cheerful giving for it is yours anyway and again when i give i am willfully saying i belong to you god and I agree with your purposes and I agree that the gospel has got to go. And so, so the gospel going sometimes requires of me sacrificially giving and, and trusting you with this. And so I, I'm with joyful readiness giving to you what is already yours. By the way, this word is in 2 Corinthians 9, 6. Nine, seven. each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You know what the word cheerful, cheerful means there in the Greek? It means hilarious. It means that sometimes we should put money in the box and we just go, <laughs> I am really trusting you, God, and I'm trusting you. And, and this kind of seems funny that I'm giving this, but, but God, I'm, te- I'm, I'm, I'm going to do what you say. I'm going to trust you. That's what the word means, hilarious. So we're saying to him, as you are my king, I give this to you regardless of how much I have in my bank account. I am going to trust you. I give to you and I say to you and I'm giving this and I'm, I'm trusting you and your promise says that as I give, you will meet my need, not my want. You will meet my need. And I'm thoroughly convinced of this. That if all of us in this room today who live in Collin County, one of the richest places in the world. That if we lived with our money, we faithfully gave our time, we faithfully gave our talent, we gave our treasure. Then I believe LifePoint's needs would always be met. We operate around here. If you've been here for a while, we are a minimalist church. We don't have a bunch of programs that we're feeding money into to do things. We believe that the money ought to be invested in the kingdom, and much of what we do is investing money back into the life of our church. Mission trips is a great example of that. If we're not careful and this is particular with American Western Christianity, we think we deserve a little bit more than our need. Right? Be honest. Let's be honest. We don't always have to have the best. And as American Christians, let's be honest, sometimes we want God to be a little bit more concerned, not about our need, but about our wants. And we need to be at the place where we're concerned about him meeting our needs. Pam and I have been married for 35 years and six months. We have tithed that whole time. And I can promise you this, that sometimes we're tithing and we're like, I don't know how this is going to work in these two weeks. You get paid twice a month. I don't know how this is going to work. And we have tithed. And you know what? We have always made it to the next payday. We just always have. Now, I'm one, even though I'm a pastor, um, we've, we've had some deep financial needs throughout our 35 and a half years, and I've never had somebody come to my front door and, and put, I don't have one of those testimonies where God puts exactly on my car window or on my door exactly what we need to make it till next payday. That has never happened in the history of our marriage. But I can say this to you, we have faithfully tithed and generously given, actually, and God has always met our need. And so what I just want to come to you today is, again, I don't, I don't know what in the world that you're doing here, but God knows what you're doing, and that's more important, not that I know what you're doing, but you and God may need to have a talk to where we, you trust Him about that. Last verse, verses. I shouldn't lie, I should tell the truth. Two verses. Proverbs 37, Proverbs 30, verse 7 and 8. Two things I ask of you, God. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove from me falsehood and lying, and give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, I did this, God. I'm providing for myself. That's my interpretation. That's what he's saying. Lest I be fool and deny you and say, who is the Lord? And lest I be poor and steal, and profane the name of my God. So this is God's loving counsel to Judah and to us today about an issue that needed to be addressed for them and again if this doesn't need to be addressed to you today then just rejoice that you've been walking in obedience if it's not the case for you i just want to encourage you to pray go back to the word see if what i said today is accurate in the text about giving and trust him and trust him all right let's pray